You can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Psalm 3. Turn to Psalm 3. So last week in the Psalms, I've been swimming in this Psalm for a little while, and I love it. Anybody else can throw a hand up? All right, let's pray. We'll go. We'll dig in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of coming to your word right now. God, help us to see wondrous things from your law. Open our eyes to see wondrous things from your law. God, I pray that you would rain down conviction, God, where it's needed and comfort where it's needed. Lord, that's the work that you do that we can't do, God. We just open your word, Lord, and we, we believe it's living and powerful and what you have to say from it, God, is glorious. So God, speak to us through your word and all the, all the details or all the things that you do of bringing conviction, God, or salvation or comfort to a weary soul. God, you do all of those things and I just ask you that you would do them today. God, help us as we approach your word. Teach us, God, to approach your word with fear and trembling. You said that your eyes land on those who are crushed in spirit and who tremble at your word. So God, I pray that you would make us those people today. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, let me just start by giving you kind of an outline of this psalm and what's here. Um, after the heading, the God-breathed heading is here, you have this psalm broken up into four uh, clear sections, okay? So let me just kind of give you that outline and then we'll jump in from there. So here's the heading that gives us the setting, uh, the, the place in which, or the place in life in which David wrote this psalm. It's right here at the very beginning. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So it's set during that time period. You remember it in the Old Testament when David fled from Absalom, his son. That's when this psalm was written. All right, keep going. Verse 1 and 2. What we're going to see in verse 1 and 2 is David's complaint to God. His complaint to God during this time. Verse 1. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Salem. Next section, verse 3 and 4, we're going to see David's fight for faith right in the midst of this time. Listen to it. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. Salem. Verse 5 and 6, we get there, we're going to see the result of David's fight of faith. Listen to verse 5 and 6, here's the result of his fight for faith. Verse 5, I lay down and slept, I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. In the last section, verse 7 and 8, we see a plea 
to God. David making his plea to God. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. So there's our song. Okay, we're going to start off with that setting, that uh, heading that's at the very beginning there. Let me read it to you again. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So the time of this psalm is when he fled from Absalom, his son. So if you think about this, there was a time in history where there was an insurrection that rose up against King David, and it was his own son that led it out against him. And his son's name was Absalom. You can read about that story in 2 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to go there in just a little bit, okay? But you can read about that story in 2 Samuel 15. But when you go to 2 Samuel 15, to understand it more deeply, you need to go back several several years to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Because here's what happened. Because of David's sin, that scenario of him having to flee Jerusalem away from his son because an insurrection has risen up against him. That whole scenario was a consequence of David's sin in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So to fully, to more fully understand it, we're actually going to go there. So go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I want you to see David's sin. I want you to feel the pain, feel the wickedness, the evil that's found in David's sin here. We're going to start in chapter 11, verse 1. And we're going to be here in this setting for a little while. I really want to set this up for us before we even dig into the psalm. I want to really do a good job of us coming around seeing the setting in which, uh, in which this psalm was written. Okay, So several years before Psalm 3 was written, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab, his servants, and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So we already got this picture of David, who we normally see as a mighty warrior. And here he is, cowardly, lazily, sitting back in Jerusalem while his people go out to war. So already we're seeing some problems here. Verse 2, then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And so he looks and he sees one night in the midst of this, this time of, of laziness, sitting back cowardly while his people go to war for him. In the midst of that, he goes out on the roof of his house and he sees Bathsheba. He sees her. Verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So here's the problem. If anybody knows what's about to happen, you know this. He knows that this is Uriah's wife, an honorable, an honorable man who's out fighting for him right now. As, as, as he's looking on his rooftop, Uriah is out fighting for him, an honorable man. And he sees his wife and he knows, he knows that that's his wife. Look at verse 4. Then David sent messengers... And took her. And she came to him. 
And he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house. David sleeps with this honorable man's wife. Verse 5. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. David impregnated this honorable man's wife. If you keep reading, you see that it doesn't stop there. The evil, the wickedness, you start imagining that, imagining that scenario with, with you being out to war like Uriah and your own wife being taken by this man, David. And you start thinking through that scenario. Well, listen, the evil does not stop there because then David tries to cover it up. He calls this man in from war and he tries to cover up by letting this man go with his wife. He tries to cover up his sin. Can you imagine the evil of looking this honorable man in the eye, deceiving him, knowing that you've impregnated his wife? Can you feel the wickedness of that? David realizes that he's not going to be able to cover up this sin because of Uriah's, uh, his status as a man of honor that does not go home with his wife during that time. And so he plans, here it goes even a step further, he plans to murder this man. So David plans to murder this man, Uriah. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, murdered by David, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, anybody with a pulse is fuming. If this is, if this is it's not just, you know, something you've heard before. You are fuming with anger over what you've just read. You say, I cannot believe the wickedness of this man. I cannot believe that he has done this. And you're just fuming with anger over what you've just read. I want you to just imagine that you're a part of Uriah's family. Or you imagine you're part, of, you're part of Bathsheba's family. And here's this man that has stolen his wife away. He's, he's taken away her purity. Stripped her of her precious husband. Murdered him. A rapist. A murderer. And you're fuming with anger or just... Imagine being Bathsheba's grandfather. You imagine being Bathsheba's grandfather in that moment. And your granddaughter, this is, she has been dealt with like this. Her purity stripped away. And so we're fuming with anger over this issue. When you get to chapter 12, what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12 is God is now going to rebuke David. God rebukes David through the prophet Nathan. And Nathan begins this rebuke by telling David a story. He kind of lures David in through a story to show him his own wickedness and his own injustice. And David bites on the Lord. Now, I'm going to start in verse 7. I want you to hear what God says to him. Verse 7. We're going to read to verse 12. Chapter 12, verse 7. Then Nathan said to David... You are the man. You are the one that's done this is what he's saying. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. 
He says, I've shown you grace, David. I've given you all things. Verse 9. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, here's the consequence. Here's the consequence of your sin, David. Now, therefore, the the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. Let me repeat that. I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, David, because of your sin. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. For he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. And so what we see here is that we see the fulfillment of verse 11. When he says, David, because of your sin, I'm going to raise up adversity to you out of your own house. The fulfillment of that. Is what we read about several years later, a few chapters later in chapter 15. And we read about God doing that. We read about God raising up his own son to, to, to lead out an insurrection against him. So what we see is the setting in which Psalm 3 is written is the fruit of David's own sin. Do you understand that? This is a Psalm of David. When he fled from Absalom, his son, we read about that in 2 Samuel 15, but it's a fruit of his sin in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's a consequence of his own sin. So there's a sense. And when you when you read Psalm three, there's a sense in which you should think, man, David is a victim. Uh, He's a victim of an insurrection that's come up, led out by his own son. He's a victim of this. But there's another sense in which you should think he only has himself to blame. His sin brought about this situation. Now, before fast forwarding to 2 Samuel 15, I don't want to skip this next verse here. And I think you'll know later why this is important that you don't skip this. Okay? But I don't want to skip this. Look at verse 13. We're going to look at verse 13 before we go to the place where, where, where Psalm 3 is set. Look at verse 13. And what we're going to see in verse 13 is David's repentance of his sin. And we're going to see the Lord giving forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. He recognizes his sin. And that seems like such a small phrase there. But if you go, go, to, go yourself someday and go read Psalm 51, which is the, the, the further elaboration on what he just said right there. And Psalm 51 is written as a, a psalm of repentance after, he, after this sin with Bathsheba. So you go read Psalm 51 and you see a man whose heart is broken. And he says, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. I've sinned against you, God. Oh, God, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. You see his heart crying out to God. As he repents of this sin. And then look at the next phrase. And Nathan said to David. And here, this, is, this ought to shock you. This ought to shock you. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The rage that you felt over that sin of David. Where he took that man's wife. 
Where he took his wife, he slept with his wife, he impregnated his wife, and then he murdered the man. He shed innocent blood. The rage that you feel when you hear that. Can God forgive that? The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. But doesn't this make God unjust? You think about that. God, just like that. You just put away his sins just like that. You imagine being Bathsheba's grandfather. What? You just put away his sin. He did all this wickedness, all these things. He deserves to die. He deserves hell forever. And you just like that, you just put away his sin. That's it. And God seems unjust. He does not seem like the righteous judge that he claims to be. Go with me for a second to Romans chapter 3. I want you to think about Romans 3.25 in light of the wickedness of David and God putting away his sin. Romans 3.25 Whom God set forth is talking about Jesus. Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. There's Jesus as the wrath bearer. Jesus as the one that's going to bear the wrath of people that deserve God's wrath. People that are supposed to die and, hell, die and go to hell forever. And he bears their wrath. He is the propitiation. Through faith. Listen. To demonstrate his righteousness. To demonstrate His righteousness. Jesus goes to the cross as the wrath bearer. To show forth that our God is righteous. That our God is just. He is a just judge. Why would Jesus need to do that? So we tend to think Jesus went to the cross to forgive us of our sins. But this says Jesus went to the cross to vindicate God. Because you look back at this. This thing that we just read, and what do we think? God, you are not just. You cannot be just because how could you just let that sin go? And so Jesus comes to vindicate God. Why would he need to do that? Next phrase. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So here's our God who passed over the sins of David. And so he seems, God seems unjust, but then Christ comes and the sins of David are laid upon Christ and the just wrath of God is poured out on Jesus instead of David. God is just and David is forgiven. This can go together. He is the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. And the same goes for us. The same goes for us. The question that People may ask at times, and it's not the right question, is how could God send you to hell and yet remain good? If you hear somebody say that, they don't understand the, the, the sinfulness of man. They don't understand how much we deserve hell. That it's the right thing that we go to hell. They don't get that if they say, if God sends you to hell, how can we be good? <clears throat> the right question is how can God forgive you how can God forgive David? How can God even forgive you and still remain just? And the answer is Christ is the propitiation that he might show forth the justice and the righteousness of God. So think about it with me. Think about David's life. <clears throat> David has sinned terribly. David has repented sincerely. He's been forgiven of his sins. He's experienced amazing grace. But... 
he will still face some consequences for his sin. Remember, God said, I'm going to raise up an adversary for you. I'm going to raise up adversity for you out of your own house in 2 Samuel 12, 11, And it's fulfilled in chapter 15. Go with me to 2 Samuel 15. 2 Samuel 15. So when you get to 2 Samuel 15, what we have is this is years later. The last few chapters have been about Absalom. He has been a rotten son. He's been a troublesome son to David. David loved him. He wept when he was isolated from the kingdom. He wept when Absalom died. But this is, this is the son of David who is troublesome, a rotten son. And what we read in chapter 15, as Absalom raises up, he raises up an insurrection against his own father. That's a fruit of what we just read of David's sin in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Okay? Now, Absalom begins to raise up these, these, this insurrection through deception and through flattery. Okay, he flatters the people, he deceives the people, he steals the hearts of the people, he convinces them to raise up against David and appoint him as king instead. Look at verse 6 right here. In this manner, which was deception and flattery, in this manner Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to, king, to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Look at verse 12. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite. By the way, Bathsheba's grandfather. While he offered sacrifices and the conspiracy, listen to it. The conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in numbers. Here, here's Absalom. Raising up an army against his own father, looking to overthrow and even murder his own father. And the conspiracy is growing stronger and stronger and stronger. I want you to think about it. Not only has David's son turned against him, his own son. Not only had the people's hearts been stolen away, but even, even his, his officers in the kingdom, even his, his, uh, his leaders, his fellow leaders that are there, like namely Ahithophel, the grandfather of Bathsheba, has turned against him and gone, defected to Absalom's side. Absalom has secretly and successfully raised up an army to attack Jerusalem and dethrone King David. And we see this all throughout this chapter. And so what we have is David in this chapter, we read about David and a band of his loyal, loyal followers. They're headed out of Jerusalem. They're, they're fleeing Jerusalem like a wolf pup with his tail between his legs and they're gone. They're leaving out of Jerusalem. So you imagine this is a time of deep sadness. This is a time of anxiety and fears, deep, deep sadness in David's life is what we're seeing here. And, and then think about this. Psalm 3 is written in that setting. David has sinned. David has been forgiven of his sin. And yet he's facing the consequences of his sin. And it's deep, 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 deep sadness. Think about the sadness of your beloved child. Some of you, I've, I've heard some of you weep over your children. You imagine that son or daughter rising up against you and hating your guts. And he weeps. David weeps. You think about the sadness of his own people turning away from him. Even Mephibosheth, the one that he, that he loved and that he, and that he, he gave himself for. And let him, he let him come and sit at the king's table. Even he gets news that even Mephibosheth has, has, 
turned away from him. Even his own counselors have turned away. He has to leave Jerusalem, the city of God. He has to leave the tabernacle of God where God dwells with his people. And he has to flee from that place, defeated by his enemies. You imagine the sadness. You imagine how he's worried about his life. He's worried about his future. He doesn't know if he's going to come back to this place. Look at verse 25. Chapter 15, verse 25. David doesn't know if he's coming back. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you. Here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. And so he doesn't even know if he's going to come back into this place. And to add to all this sadness, you take all this deep sadness that he's going through, to add to that, in a sense, he is to blame. He can blame himself. This is a fruit. You can imagine him running it through his mind that this is a consequence, a fruit of my own sin against God. Imagine the, the darkness that he enters into, the sadness that he, he enters into during this time. Look at verse 30. Verse 30. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and listen, and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot and all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. You imagine the sadness, weeping as they went up, weeping alongside David. And now from this background, what you think about from this background, Psalm 3 is written. Psalm 3 is written. So let's go to Psalm 3. From this place of deep sadness, Psalm 3 is written. Let's read verse 1 and 2 after the heading there. Verse 1 and 2, listen. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. You get it in the context? Many are they who rise up Against me. Many are they who say of me. There's no help for him in God. What we know from the context is this is not some paranoid king. This is real problems he is facing. Many really have gathered together against him. You can, you can just hear the whispers of fear and anxieties. He says, many are they who've risen up against me. Many are they who say there's no help for me in God. You can just hear the fear there, the anxiety that's found there. When he says many are they, he's not exaggerating. Thousands and thousands in the armies risen up by his own son coming against him. I want you to feel his fears. I want you to feel David's deep-rooted anxieties as he writes this psalm. Have you ever felt that kind of fear and anxiety? You feel that kind of anxiety right now? I want you to understand where he's coming from. Zoom in to verse 2 for just a minute. Zoom in to verse 2. Think about verse 2. Just, kind of, just look at it. Not only are many people rising up against him, but what else? Many people are saying to him, there's no help for you in God. There's no help for David in God. And you think about how that could have landed on him. Here he is. He already knows that what he's going through is a consequence of his own sin. He knows that. And then he hears that voice. There's no help for you in God. 
There's no help for you. Imagine how that could land on the heart and take root. They're probably right. There is no help for me in God. I'm in this position because of my own sin. You think about Satan coming to Adam and Eve and, and, and pushing them to distrust God. Has God indeed said? Has God indeed said? Did God really say that? Does God mean what he says? And in the same way right here, we see, we see there's no help for you in God. These words that would move somebody to distrust God. Think of how easily that could have landed on David. This is my fault that I'm here. Look at verse 3 and 4. Verse 3 and 4. Here we're going to see in verse 3 and 4, David is going to turn the corner. And he's going to begin to fight against these fears, anxieties, guilt. He's about to go to war against it. And there's two things that he does. It's the remembrance of the truth about God and prayer. Remembrance of the truth about God, number one. Prayer, number two. And we see it in verse 3 and 4. Look at it. Verse 3, the remembrance of the truth about God. But you, O Lord, are a shield from me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. And here's the prayer. This is prayer. I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. See him turning the corner in this deep sadness. Many are they who rise up against me, but you, God, are shield from me. He begins to remember these things about God. So think about the remembrance of the truth in verse three. What does he remember about God? First thing he remembers, you're a shield from me. Some of your versions say he's a shield around me or a shield about me. That's the idea that he is a shield around us. Think about that. God is a shield for us. This means he is our defender. He is our protector. I want you to notice that it says it's a shield around us. It's not just some little shield that you hold in your hand and move it around and try to stop an arrow from hitting you. This is a shield about me. The picture here is those shields that cover front and sides and over the top so that you can go right up to the very walls of the enemy that shoots from that wall. You can go right up into the intensity of the battle because the Lord is a shield about me. That's the picture here. God's not interested in being our excuse to be outside the battle. He's interested in being our shield that we might press forward into the battle. He goes on to say, not only a shield about me, but my glory. He says, you are my glory. You think about it. Everything that David could glory in has been stripped away from him. Everything that he could boast in has been stripped away from him. But he says, but you, O oh God, are my glory. You, O oh God, you're my boast. When everything else has been taken away. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, God said this. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. David's wisdom has been stripped away. He looks like a fool, but he has the Lord. David's might has been stripped away. He's running off like a wolf pup, yet he has God. David's riches have been stripped away. His kingdom's been given into the hand of another man. And, and yet he has his God. And so when everything else has been stripped away, he says, I have God. I didn't, I'm, not, I'm not supposed to boast in those things anyways. I boast in my God. I glory in my God. He is my glory when everything else is gone. Which means when I lose everything and I have God, I've lost nothing. He goes on to say, 
the one who lifts up my head. So he's a shield about me. He's my glory. And he's the one who lifts up my head. This is David reminding himself right in the midst of deep, deep sadness. You, oh God, are the one that lifts up my head to places of joy unspeakable and full of glory. He lifts up our head and you think of fullness of joy. God restores joy to you. you think about that. Listen to this verse in Psalm 27. Verse 6. And now my head shall be lifted up. He lifts up my head. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Brother and sister in Christ. So if you're here and you say, I'm in a place of deep sadness. I'm in a season of deep sadness. Don't you know that God is the lifter of your head? Don't you know that the scripture says, it says that, it says that sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You're being escorted through the valley of the shadow of death, but God is your shepherd and the place that he leads you is a place called fullness of joy, right hand, at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. That's where he leads you to. So David's fighting the fears, the anxieties, the sadness with remembrance of truth. About God. But also with prayer. Look at verse 4. I cried to the Lord with my voice. And he heard me from his holy hill. So here's this, this prayer. David's experience is I cried out to God. I cried out to him in my deep distress. And here's his experience. And he heard me. God listened to me. He heard me. That's his experience. What's your experience? Does God hear you? When you pray. The testimony of multitudes and multitudes of saints in all generations is I cried out to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. We would be fools not to pray to this God. Too often I think when the going gets tough, anxieties and, and fears abound, we're so quick to talk to a human. Or to talk through some sort of human, or make some kind of human plans to get out of the trouble. And so slow to speak to the living God. Humans are weak. Human plans are frail. But the Almighty is above all things. And you can cry out to God with your voice. And He hears you from His holy hill. Verse 5 and 6. Here we're going to see the result. So we got the distress that's happened, the sadness, deep sadness in David's life. And he fights it through remembrance of the truth about God and prayer to God. Here's the result in verse 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. This is not about David just getting physical sleep. Although I'm... I believe that God gives us sleep. I believe He sustains us through the night as we sleep. And I believe He awakens us. And we ought to give Him glory for that. But the point of this is not that He got physical sleep. Notice that the sleep that He got is, is a fruit of fearlessness. I am not afraid. That's what He says in verse 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. Verse 6. I will not be afraid. 
That's what's pushing this, this rest he can have before God. This lack of anxiety. Why? I will not be afraid because of my God. He's my shield. He's my glory. He's the lifter of my head. He's the one I cry to and he hears me. I will not be afraid. Though ten thousands of people have set themselves against me all around. This reminds me of Jesus asleep on the boat. In the midst of the mega storm, remember the mega storms happening? Jesus is, it goes out of its way to say Jesus is asleep on that boat. His disciples are panicking. They go wake him up. Do you not care about what's happening to us? And he looks at them as he wakes up. And after he calms the storm with just a word, he looks at them and he says, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? It reminds me of Peter in Acts 12. He's Chain between two soldiers. It's the night before his execution. And he's slumbering. Asleep. Ten thousands of people have set themselves against me all around. I will not be afraid. Go to verse 7 and 8. Here we see a, a beautiful direct. As, as, so. so David has said these things and now he's going to turn his eyes up to God and he's going to speak directly this prayer to God. Listen to this beautiful prayer in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You've broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Imagine David there. Imagine him. He's in the midst of sorrow, deep sorrow and pain. He's... He's, he's wandering around. He's, he's sleeping in a cave somewhere outside of Jerusalem. You imagine him there in deep sorrow. He goes to sleep that night remembering that God is a shield and a glory and the lifter up his head. He goes to bed that night crying out to God and God hearing his prayers. And he wakes up the next morning and he's fearless and he's praising God that he woke him up that morning. And then he lifts up this battle cry to God in verse 7. Arise, O God. Imagine him coming out of that cave and seeing the sun coming up. Arise, O oh God, save me, O oh my God. And the reason David can say these sort of things in the midst of hopelessness is because of what follows, because he remembers what God has done. You, God, have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. I can ask that you would arise, God, because you struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. I can cry out to you, God, and ask you to arise. Why? Verse 8, because salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. It's beautiful. <clears throat> now, I want everybody here to feel David's heart in this psalm. Uh, and I hope you've already begun making some applications on your own. So you think through this psalm and you feel David's heart and what he's going through. And I hope you've already started making some applications. I want to get I want to dig a little deeper into some applications. OK, but before we do that, I want you to see some clear connections between us and David. Some clear connections that that will convince you that this psalm, Psalm three, can be the cry of your heart and not just his. So I want you to see some clear connections between Ourselves and David. So two ways that this psalm and this setting in which this psalm is written, two ways that it should immediately resonate with everybody in the room. Okay? Way number one is this. David is experiencing this dichotomy. Think about it. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
David's experiencing that as he writes this song. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sad, yet joyful in Christ. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Think about it. David's experiencing the forgiveness of his sin. Several years earlier, he knows about that sin that produced this situation. That he's been forgiven eternally. That's, that's rejoicing in him. And yet he also knows that he's facing the consequences of sin. That's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He's been given eternal gladness, and yet he's facing momentary Sadness. Psalm 3 is written by a man who is right in the middle of this amazing dichotomy. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I want to encourage you that this is not unlike us. Most everybody in the room, this is like us. Think about it like this. Three, three different ways that we're like David. We're like David and that we have sinned terribly against God. Were, were you raging earlier when I was talking about David's sin? Were you raging about that? Was your heart going, that's not right. He deserves to die. Were you mad about what he did to that man and his wife? And that rage that you felt toward David's sin does not even hold a candle to the rage of the wrath of God that he feels towards your sin. You're not better than him. You're not better than him. And so just like David, we have sinned terribly against God. Another thing, many of us like David have experienced the forgiveness of sin. We felt the sweet release of sin's burden falling off our back. Many of us here have felt that. Now let me, let me say this as a side note. If you have not, if you've not come to Christ and experienced the forgiveness of sins, I want to plead with you. I want to plead with you to come to Christ. Because this doesn't apply to you if you have not. In fact, if you're in a season of darkness like we read about in Psalm 3, you, if you're outside of Christ, have no basis of hope. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing does not apply to you. It's just sorrowful. Because no matter what relief or comfort you get, you still must die one day and face the wrath of God forever. Face hell forever. So I plead with you. Christ who died for you. Christ who laid down His life. Come to Him in repentance and faith like David. So that you have a basis for sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So we're like David and that we sin terribly. We're like David and that we've felt the sweet release of forgiveness of sins. And then we're like David and that we still face the consequences of sin in this life. The consequences of sin that bring about sorrow, pain, fear, anxieties, all these things. We still face the consequences of sin in our life. Now listen. It, it may or may not be a direct consequence like we see with David. We see that, right? David did this thing and this thing was the consequence. So that's clear. That's clear. But maybe we don't always face the direct consequence, but nonetheless, indirectly, we all face the consequences of sin as we live in this world. We live in a dark, rebellious, sinful world. It's called this present evil age in which we live. And in the midst of this, it's full of sorrow and anxieties and fears. And you're going to face that in your life. Although you've experienced the sweet release of the forgiveness of sins. You're not unlike. Most of you are not unlike David here. And so we share in this, okay? So this brings us. This idea of you facing sorrows, it brings us to the second way, the second thing I want to highlight that connects us to David. Okay, second thing to highlight that connects us 
to David. In Psalm 3, we see David fighting and successfully fighting against fears, anxieties, and guilt. And those emotions resonate with everybody here. Maybe not in this moment, but at some point you have resonated with this fear, this life of anxieties, this, this guilt, this guilt. And so David is fighting that in this psalm. Think about verse 1. Many are they who, who, who rise up against me. Many are they who rise up against me. Excuse me. Many are they who say of me there's no help for him in God. You imagine the fears for his life. The anxieties over his life. The anxiety that's waging war on his soul because he's lost it all. Imagine the anxieties there as he weeps and he leaves Jerusalem. Anxieties of his life and future. Anxious about his family. You know, he was a dethroned king. Anxious over politics. Can anybody relate to these things? Do you live an anxious life? That's what I want you to think about. Do you live an anxious life? We can relate with anxieties. Do you live an anxious life? Is your life marked by the anxieties? One thing I want to say. We must view these anxieties as a, as a sinful thing. You must view it as sin. Otherwise, you will just be okay with sitting in a year after year after year. These anxieties. Philippians 4, 6, it says, be anxious for nothing. So if you're anxious for something, you've disobeyed his command. Be anxious for nothing. It's a command of God not to live this anxious life. Not to have a life marked by anxiety. Anxiety shows God to be untrustworthy. I can't trust him, so I'm anxious. Or he's not powerful enough, so I'm anxious. He's not good to me, so I'm anxious. Do you understand that? This is what it shows God to be. It puts God on display as not a very good God. And here's the problem with this sin of anxiety. I want to turn the corner and think about this for a minute. It's become very socially acceptable. In fact, even virtuous. You imagine somebody, they're living in anxiety over, over, over their parenting and over their kids' lives. And they're just living in this anxiety. And they're not trusting in the living God. And you imagine that person looking at somebody saying, Man, I've just been so worried about my kids. And what ought to be a confession is really something that is they're putting forward almost as a virtue. Look how much I care about my kids. And I want to encourage you to be warned by that, that in this culture, it's almost seen as a virtue. I remember I, I started at a job when I was about 20 years old. And I walk in this job and it's like you're working in like a plant with these, these boxes and you're putting them through these machines. And I'm working at this, this job and a guy on a tow motor comes by and his first piece of advice to me was, hey, man, walk fast, look worried, you'll be fine. Because looking worried is a must mean you must be working hard, right? I want to encourage you to come against that. It's anxiety and this worry. It's a sin against the living God. And it's been so it's been marked as socially acceptable in this culture. Ver, verse, I think Psalm 3, verse 2, you see the, the idea of guilt. Many of those who say of me, there is no help for you in God. You imagine that landing on him in this guilt of man. They're right because this I'm in this scenario because of my own sin. You imagine the guilt and what guilt does. Guilt just makes anxieties worse and worse and worse and traps you in anxieties. Maybe a good picture of this would be what I've experienced at times in my own life with parenting. Here I am worried about my kids. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm, I'm not trusting in the living God, but I'm anxious over my children's life. Maybe I'm, I'm walking in that sin. And then when I begin to come out of it, I'm remembering the promises of God. Guilt comes along. And guilt says, you don't have access to those promises because you've messed it up. And so guilt in, it entraps you 
and these anxieties. So, so I want you to think about that. With these connections to our lives to David, with those connections in mind, okay, we live in the dichotomy of sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We too face fears, anxieties, and guilt. With that in your mind, I want to bring a few more applications out of Psalm 3 for our lives. For our lives, okay? First one is this. The anatomy of anxiety. I think Psalm 3 verse 1 and 2 shows us the anatomy of anxiety. And you need to be aware of this so that you can fight this sin. Um, in other words, verse 1 and 2 shows how anxiety works in your life. Think about it like this. Some problem gets highlighted, whether it's a legitimate problem or whether it's not legit. Some problem is highlighted and God is diminished. Verse 1, the problem is highlighted, right? Many are they who say, there's no help for me in God. Or, excuse me, verse 1. Many are they who, they who rise up against me. The problem is highlighted. And then verse 2, God is diminished. Many are they who say, there's no help for you in God. The, the problem is highlighted. God is diminished. And this is anxiety. In anxiety, the problems seem really, really big. And God seems very, very small. Now, we don't have time to go through all the different uh, examples of anxiety that could be represented across this room. We don't have time to, to, to unpack all of that. But I do just want to give you a few examples to think about of how this plays out. Think about anxiety in relation to salvation. Somebody's here. Okay, imagine it. And they see how sinful they are. You know that you deserve God's wrath. You know that the judgment's coming. And it worries you. And it bothers you. And yet God looks so the problem is highlighted in your mind and in your heart. And yet God looks so small to you. You don't think He can save you. If that is you, I encourage you. Christ is mighty to save. He saved a man like David. He went to the cross. And the sins of that wicked man David were laid upon him at the cross. And he took David's punishment. And if he saved him, will he not save you? What about these anxieties in relation to money? I got this money problem, this financial problem, this thing's going down. The problem is highlighted, but my God is too small to do anything about it. Or this parenting problem, as I've said a few times. Oh, I just long for my kids to be saved. And you don't see God as the one who saves souls. The one that said, let those little children come to me. Or what about just anything in day-to-day -day life? So I, I fear that some of us are only and always worried about this thing that's right here ahead. Rather than seeing the eternity of God and the bigness of God. And lifting up your eyes and seeing these things we're worried about oftentimes don't even matter. Especially not in light of God. And so the problems get highlighted and God is diminished. And verse 3 through 6 of this psalm shows us how to fight this sin. And we must fight this sin. First thing we see in verses 3 through 6 is the war against this sin. A life of anxiety. The war against this sin is not won by minimizing the sin. Excuse me, by minimizing the problem. The war against this sin is not won by minimizing the problem. David does not minimize the problem. Verse 2, he says, I'm not afraid what? Though ten thousands of people set themselves against me. He has not minimized the problem. Minimizing the problems in your life is a carnal and unfruitful way to deal with anxiety. This happens in many ways. Hey, just, just clear your mind. Just put it out of your mind. Just don't worry about it. Just peace, peace when there is no peace. 
It's this mindset of just take the words and put it aside. That's not a way to deal with anxieties. The answer to killing anxiety in your life is not somehow to get rid of the problems. But the answer is to get your eyes on the almighty God, creator of the universe, who is above all problems. The answer is not to live a carefree life, but to get your eyes on the almighty one on whom you can cast your cares. I think this is important to live a life marked by anxieties is a life of sinful unbelief. It's a life of sinful unbelief. No amount of essential oils, no amount of 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 some kind of breathing techniques is going to cure you of sinful anxieties. It will not happen. Only the almighty God can do that. So Psalm three shows us how to fight. So I'm going to put two weapons before you. That you saw David using. Weapon number one is the remembrance of the word of God. Weapon number two is prayer. So we see in verse three, the weapon of the word of God as David turns to fight the anxiety. He says he remembers who God is. He's my shield, my glory, the lifter of my head. We do this through the word of God. This is how we do this. The way we go into the remembrance of truth about God to fight against a life of anxiety is we dive and, and we consume ourselves into his word. In verse four, we see prayer as another weapon. We see David. I cried out to God with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. We must be a people of the word of God and a people of prayer. We have to be a people of the word of God and prayer. An example of fighting anxieties. Let me give you an example of fighting anxieties with the remembrance of the word. Think about it like this. What is it that makes you anxious? Why do you live in fears and anxieties? What is it that that grabs you? What is it that pulls you into this life of anxiety? Let me give you something that I've run to, that I've fought with over and over and over again. Think of Romans 8.32 that my brother shared just a moment ago. Romans 8.32. Think about that verse for just a minute. Where he says, God who did not spare his own son. How will he not also freely in Christ Jesus give us all things? Think about that. So here you are. What is it that causes you to be anxious? And then imagine you going to war with the word of God. But God, your word says that if you didn't spare your own son. I mean, you sent your son to die for me. Why would I be so foolish to think that you wouldn't help me in all things? That you don't mean me good. Imagine going to war like that. Are you consumed by this book? Are you consumed? So every believer in the room fighting in this life of anxiety, are you consumed by the word of God? Because you must be. Let me give an example of fighting in prayer. I want to give it to you out of Psalm 143. It's an example of fighting in prayer. Verse three, listen, just listen. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit's overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. You got fears. You got sorrows. You got anxieties that are found right there. So what does he do? Verse 5. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. This is the remembrance of the truth of the word of God about Christ, about our God. 
And then look at the, the verse about prayer. Verse 6. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. He spreads out his hands to God in prayer. Answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me. Lest I be like those who go down into the pit. You see a man warring in prayer. In the midst of my soul is overwhelmed within me. I cry out to the living God who hears me. We must be a people of remembrance of the Word of God, consumed by the Word of God, and a people of prayer. I want to notice that verse 4 says, I cried out to the Lord. It says, with my voice. I wonder why he's told us that. I cried out to God, it says in Psalm 3, 4, with my voice. I love that. There's a time where silent prayers just will not do. It won't do. You got the voice of the enemy saying, there's no help for him in God. And you need to drown it out with loud, desperate prayers to the living God. How is your prayer life? How's your prayer life? I don't mean little shallow prayers in your truck on the way to work or as you put your makeup on. I mean, how's that life in the secret place where you give out loud, desperate cries to the living God and you drown out the anxieties around you? Man, I want us to go after that. That we'd be a people of the Word of God and a people of prayer. Grace Community Church, we cannot be a people of anxiety like the world. We must be a people that goes to God in the secret place and in the Word of God and we trust Him. I think God wants us to live, verse 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I awoke for you sustain me. You sustain me, God. I will not be afraid. I think he wants us to live like that. I will not be anxious, though ten thousands of people set themselves against me. Last two verses, and we get here in verse 7 and 8 here. As we're just thinking about some application. Let me ask you, I'm going to read verse 7 and 8 again. Can you sincerely pray this to God? Does your faith in God allow you to pray this to God? Listen. Arise, O Lord. Imagine in the midst of distress. Save me, oh my God. And here's the things you must believe. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You've broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Do you believe that? Do you believe? Can you go to Him and say, Arise, oh God, because you believe He's broken the fangs of the wicked. Do you believe that He's destroyed your enemies? Do you believe that the enemy that you face is one with a crushed head already? Do you believe that? Do you believe that salvation belongs to God? Deliverance belongs to God. Rescue belongs to God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that He blesses His people? That He hears you when He calls? Because if you do, you can go to Him and say, In the midst of darkness, arise, O God. Deliver me, O my God. I want you to think about this as we close, okay? Just think about this as we close. The most serious problem that every single one of us face, the most serious problem... That each one of us face. I mean more serious than ten thousands of people who set themselves against me on all sides. More serious than that is the wrath of God. The most serious problem that every one of us were headed toward and some of us still are headed toward. Most serious problem. And think about this. Every single one of us. Headed down that path to face the judgment of God without Christ. Swallowed up in God's wrath. Swallowed up in hell. Suffering for all of eternity. You imagine that's the most serious problem you and I have ever faced. And Christ dealt with it. Christ came. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came, died on the cross, suffered and bled and died and absorbed our wrath there at the cross. The most serious problem you have has been dealt with. Do you think he won't deal with these other problems? Do you think you should live an anxious life? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us. How will he not also in Christ freely give us all things? I want to close just by praying what David prayed in verse 7 and 8. So please bow your head and pray with me. God, we say to you, arise, O Lord. Save us, O God. Arise, O Lord, and save us, O God. God, I pray that specifically for any here that have not been delivered from the wrath to come, that do not know you, God, that are on the broad path to destruction. God, lift them up and put them right before you, God. Arise, O God, and save them, Lord. Open their eyes to your glory. Open their eyes to their own sin and their own need for you, God. I pray that if they feel their need for you now, that they wouldn't ignore it, Lord, but they'd come running to your cross, that they would see your death for them at the cross is beautiful and good news. God, save souls. Save the soul of the lost person in this room. God, I pray for all of us, Lord. For your people, your saints, your sons and your daughters, that you would arise, O oh God, and you would continually be our deliverer, our rescuer, our savior, again and again and again. God, turn us, turn us away from the wickedness of looking to other things for deliverance and other things for salvation and teach us to come to you, God, even in the darkest place. Arise, O oh Lord. Teach us what it is, God, to experience your presence in the midst of darkness, in the midst of Anxiety is knocking at our door. Arise, Lord. God, your word says that you have struck down our enemies and we believe it, God. God, you came that you might destroy the works of the wicked one, destroy the works of the devil. And I praise you, God, that you did it through your glorious cross. You did it through your glorious resurrection, Lord. God, salvation belongs to you. It's yours. It's your work, God. It's the work of your hands. It's the work of your sovereignty. It's the work of love that you do, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would make us a people that lean against you, God. Turn us away from the fears and anxieties that the world experiences because you are the rock of our salvation. Salvation belongs to you, Lord. Teach us to trust you, God. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God that blesses your people. God, I pray that there's any here for any person here, God, and you know them, you know their deepest thought, God. I pray for the people here, Lord, that are suffering, suffering deeply with anxiety right now. I pray that you would rip them, rip them out of that, Lord. I pray that you would open their eyes to see that you, there is nothing too difficult for you. God, help them to destroy the lies of the enemy and say, have you really said and there is no help for you and God. God, I pray that you would destroy those lies, even through this song today. And I pray, God, they would trust you as the Almighty, and trust you as, the, as a good and gracious and loving God that means them good. God, teach them that they would trust you. Bring people out of a life of anxiety. Today. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. And thank you for letting us pray to you. In Jesus' name.